This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our returning celebrity guest scorer, my sister, Allison Techmeyer. Hello, everyone. Tonight, for our 160th episode, we discuss the Best Picture winner, 12 Years a Slave from 2013. Directed by Steve McQueen, written by John Ridley, music by Hans Zimmer, Starring Chiwetel Ejiofor as Solomon Northup slash Platt, Michael Fassbender as Edwin Epps, Lupita Nyong'o as Patsy, Sarah Paulson as Mary Epps, Paul Dano as John Tibbetts, Benedict Cumberbatch as William Ford, Alfrey Woodard as Mistress Harriet Shaw, Brad Pitt as Samuel Bass, Garrett Dillahunt as Armsby, Scoot McNary as Merrill Brown, Taryn Killam as Abram Hamilton, Chris Chalk as Clemens Ray, Paul Giamatti as Theophilus Freeman, and Michael Kenneth Williams as Robert. Recognition for this movie? 12 Years a Slave was wide released in the United States on November 8, 2013. The film would roughly gross $187.7 million against a budget of $20 to $22 million. The film was widely praised by the majority of critics at the time, but, like any other race relations movies, had its detractors as well. However, 12 Years a Slave was named as one of the best films of 2013 by various ongoing critics, appearing on 100 different critics' top 10 lists, with 25 having the film in their number one spot for the year, the most of any film released that year. 12 Years a Slave would garner 10 Oscar nominations, including Best Director for Steve McQueen, Actor for Ejiofor, Supporting Actor for Fassbender, Costume and Production Design, and Film Editing. It would win for Best Picture, Adapted Screenplay, and Supporting Actress for Nyong'o. 12 Years a Slave currently holds a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes among critics, a 96 score on Metacritic, and a 4.1 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So let's start here. Dad, what is your relationship to this movie? Uh, saw it on, I believe, streaming after it was released, but before the Oscars. I highly doubt that you would have seen it on streaming, since this was barely the time when Netflix was even, like, a big thing. Okay, well, then I must have got it on Netflix, I would assume. Something to that effect. I, maybe I rented it, but... That would be more likely. I did not see it in the theater. I know that much. And I've only seen it one other time before this. And I think I watched that with you when we rented it the first time. So this would have been probably about the time that I graduated from school, I would assume. I would agree. Allison, what about you? I remember getting this movie from Family Video, and I watched it then. But other than that, I've never seen it since then. I remember watching it and thinking, you know, it was a great movie, but I kind of forgot about it for a while. Yeah, I think it's one of those that in the moment it felt bigger because of the subject material. But if you've seen it since then, I don't know why. It's not a movie that lends itself to repeated viewings because I think of the reasons why it was a great movie to begin with. It's rawness, it's unflinching look at a very difficult subject material, and it's not something that I think people want to necessarily go back into the historical record over and over and over to really feel. Not to say that once is enough, but you get a much different sense of things after seeing it one time. I really don't know how many repeated viewings of you need of this in the same way that you need repeated viewings of Schindler's List. So what is this movie about? Well, I guess I'll make the attempt, which is this is to portray as accurately as possible slave life in the pre-Civil War South. It shows the brutality, the un- injustice, the um, lack of humanity, and the hypocrisy. 
it is somewhat of a biographical story, yes. But within that, and I think why it's effective is much for the same reason I look at something like The Passion of the Christ was at the time. It was meant to really show the extent of the violence and the rawness of said violence in a way that hadn't really been depicted on screen before. I'm sure that we've seen bigotry and we've seen death and brutality, but never quite to this level. We never got the full realness of what, I guess, slavery must have been somewhat close to. Because I'm not even sure this movie goes fully to the levels it could have to show the the true brutality that of some Southern slave owners pre-Civil War. Well, in movie form, yes. You're too young to have watched what became a huge epic in the 70s, which was uh, the uh, miniseries Roots from Alex Haley's book. I saw it. Okay. You can thank Jim Dillmeyer for that. That was the first real portrayal of slavery. And it wasn't quite as raw as this, but a lot of the same implications and same themes, brutality, racism, rape, were quite prevalent in that story as well as in this movie. Uh, The difference, and I I guess this will come down to the issue when we start talking about novelty, is this is from a personal perspective as opposed to a historical perspective. Well, I mean, yes, the movie's about all of the things you guys said. It's about the slavery and all that, but there's also more to it in the fact that it's all about this man who is trying to gain his freedom when he was denied that he had freedom and it was taken away from him and it was his struggle and his, it was him trying to find his way back to freedom and life again, when all of that had been stripped away from him. That's an interesting point. I guess I hadn't considered that angle when looking at this, just because some of the themes are so overt, but I guess in an allegory sense, that could be a much larger theme. I just, you obviously focus so much on the slavery part of it. And obviously the depictions by certain people like Fassbender. In some ways, the character is the same character, or to some extent, the same character as Tim Robbins' character in Shawshank Redemption. Uh, Erroneously or falsely accused, placed in a confined setting, put upon knowing that he is free or is not guilty, however you want to be, and how he has to conform his behavior and his action in such a way as to not cause his demise until the opportunity arises for him to flee. That's an interesting concept, given how much the Shawshank Redemption is often compared with a messianic-like figure in its telling. And how much this movie, by some, was still criticized for the white savior notion. The ending of this film is only possible through the kindness of Brad Pitt's character. But it's based on reality. I understand. There were still those criticisms, though. Which I don't think are nearly as high as some other films. But in a society that's two-tiered, where one set has all of the power, they need to give up some of it in order to have any resolution or any balance with the other side. I I just never understood that criticism when it's so blatantly imbalanced. I I understand and that was a thought or a point I had in mind, but since this is based upon a memoir of a true story, it's hard for me to indicate that that's a relevant point. So since this is a Best Picture winner... Where would it rank for you, I guess, in the pantheon of the 95 winners we've had to this point? I know both of you probably don't know nearly to the extent of the ones that I do. For me, I would say this is probably a top 20 Best Picture winner. I don't know any Best Picture winners, so... Sure you do. Maybe Slumdog Millionaire and... uh... The Hurt Locker. Never seen it. My Fair Lady. Titanic. Okay. Rain Man. 
Never seen Rain Man. Braveheart. Never seen it. Forrest Gump. Okay, I've seen that one. The Silence of the Lambs. Never seen that. <laughs> you guys forget I don't watch much. Either of the movies. Godfather movies, Patton. Keith did have me watch the first Godfather a couple of months ago. Oh no, is it a year ago already? Yeah. You haven't seen Patton? Casablanca? I'm sure Keith has made me see Patton, and Keith and I watched Casablanca. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I can't give an accurate, like, where it falls. I just know I enjoy the movie, and it's definitely something that makes me stop and think, and so I watch it for that reason. I don't really have where it would fall within other movies, as I'm not as familiar with a lot of movies. To me, uh, a best picture should instill an emotional connection, something bigger that makes you, after you've watched it, think bigger thoughts, bigger in general. This, because of its rawness, I mean, it does instill some of that, but I don't think it ranks with some of the other best picture winners, and I'd probably put it in the 30 or 40 range. One of the other things we've talked about a lot with Best Picture winners and the criticism of the Oscars is that they've not been great in dealing with race relations, i.e. Driving Miss Daisy, The Green Book, Crash. But in the last, I would say maybe 10 years, we've had others recently, this movie, Moonlight, Parasite, that have been better about discussing class and race in a way that bring the stark reality of their subjects or giving better nuance, what would you say is kind of driving, I guess, the forces of nuance and better storytelling for the evolution of the recognition of these films as opposed to before when we had movies that were much easier to criticize? It has to do with the writing and the directing. I mean, are you coming at this project as a writer and director, having experienced racism yourself? Or are you coming at it as somebody who's only observed racism from a distance? Well, given that the three movies I mentioned, Moonlight is directed by Barry Jenkins, an African-American man. Steve McQueen is an African Englishman. I'm not sure what the term would necessarily be, but somebody of uh, black descent in, in that category. And Bong Joon-ho for Parasite, who is Korean himself. So is it that we have a better diversity among the storytellers then? Is that what you're saying? I, I think that's exactly it. Because it's a difference between, I can tell you what it's like to be a short man, okay? I have much difficult, more difficult time telling you what it's like to be a black man in America. Because I'm not a black man. I can tell you what I observe. I can't tell you exactly what I feel because I don't feel it. Whereas the writer and the director, when they come from a point where they've experienced racism, are going to be able to tell stories and present stories more enlightened on the subject. Well, I think also it's partly about what you're trying to achieve with the movie you're making. I mean, I haven't seen two of those, but I've seen Driving Miss Daisy, and that one's all supposed to be kind of funny. So they're not trying to come at it from, a, I want to make you feel and think and put you in this deep, thought-provoking mindset. Whereas this is coming from, I want to tell a story, I want to tell the history, I want to show you. And so it's a very different mindset, and I think that makes a difference, too. Your motivation and trying to make the movie and what you're trying to accomplish with what you're doing makes a big difference. Well, let's dig in a little bit more on the background of the movie. Dad, do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. 12 Years a Slave is a harrowing, powerful film that transports the viewer back in time to the brutal reality of slavery in the 19th century America. The film is based on the true story and memoir of Solomon Northup, a free black man who was kidnapped and sold into slavery in the South. Chiwetel Ejiofor delivers a Stunning performance as Solomon, capturing both his intelligence and his resilience in the face of unimaginable cruelty. He is surrounded by an exceptional cast, including Michael Fassbender as the sadistic plantation owner, Lupita Nyong'o 
as a fellow slave who endures unspeakable horrors. 12 Years a Slave is a film that demands to be seen, not just for its historical importance, but for its profound exploration of the human spirit and the enduring power of hope. It is a testament to the resilience and bravery of those who fought against the brutal institution of slavery, and a reminder of the ongoing struggle for equality and justice. Did you know? Director Sir Steve McQueen had been toying with the idea of writing a script about slavery, featuring a black man who had been born free and was later forced into slavery. But McQueen was struggling with the script until his wife found Solomon Northup's biography and gave it to him. Shocked that he had never heard of Northup before, he decided to adapt the book instead. Did you know? In an October 2013 interview with NPR, Sir Steve McQueen mentioned that Solomon Northup's 1853 book reminded him of the diary of Anne Frank from nearly a century later. McQueen noted that he lives in Amsterdam and that Anne Frank is a national hero in his home country. When Northup's book resonated the same way with him, he then resolved he would not rest until he had turned it into a movie. Did you know? At first, Chiwetel Ejiofor turned down Sir Steve McQueen's offer to play the leading role of Solomon Northup but then realized he had to get over his initial fear of taking on what McQueen thought would be the role of an actor's lifetime. Ejiofor prepared for his role by immersing himself in the Louisiana plantation culture and learning how to play the violin. Did you know? Sir Steve McQueen's daughter told him to hire Sarah Paulson after viewing her audition tape because she found her scary. Did you know? Sarah Paulson was originally unable to accept the role of Mary Epps due to scheduling conflicts with the second season of American Horror Story. When series creator Ryan Murphy found out about this, he rearranged the show's production schedule so that Paulson could work on both projects. Did you know? The tree where Solomon sees several men being lynched was actually used for lynching and is surrounded by the graves of murdered slaves. Did you know? Michael K. Williams had an emotional breakdown while filming what eventually became a deleted scene in the movie. As he related on the Arsenio Hall show, the stress of recreating such painful material caused him to collapse to the ground after a take where he screamed and cried for an extended period as one of the stunt coordinators comforted him. Did you know? 12 Years a Slave is the first film from a black director to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. It was the second film in a row following Argo, to win Best Picture and a Screenplay Oscar without the Best Director Oscar. It was the fifth film with a numbered title to win Best Picture following It Happened One Night from 1934, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest from 1975, The Godfather Part Two from 1974, and Around the World in 80 Days. And it was the twelfth movie to win Best Picture with only three Oscars, a list that includes Casablanca, Midnight Cowboy, The Godfather, Rocky, Crash, and Argo, and actually added one more last year that was not a part of this list in CODA. And with that, we will take our first break, and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we are discussing the 1938 screwball romantic comedy, Bringing Up Baby, directed by Howard Hawks, screenplay by Dudley Nichols and Hagar Wilde, starring Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Best performance, Dad, who did you have down? A Gia Four. Obviously, he had a lot to do in this film, and um, the subtlety of his performance at times was uh, quite amazing. Oddly enough, as much as I enjoyed his performance, I really... <laughs> I had other people that I really wanted to recognize, so he's not actually among my three. <laughs> okay. Well, I just think there's a broad swath of different people that are delivering great performances in this movie. Oddly enough, I actually think, compared to some other critics, that the musical score in this was pretty basic, and it reused a lot of the same melodies that he or that Hans Zimmer had used previously for Inception, which... Of course, I would notice, given how much I love Inception and I've seen it multiple times. But for me, it was Steve McQueen. I think from the conception of the original 
story arc and idea. The passion driving wanting to produce something like this and to put this level of unflinching rawness on the screen was what made this movie possible and powerful. And so for me, just from the audacity to try and do a movie this way was why I gave him my best performance. I also had Chiwetel at Gia 4 just because like he really brought you in and from the simple moments where he's playing with his family to the moment when he realizes that he is in captivity to the moment he's whipping Patsy and all the little things in between. It's just he really portrayed the character and made you really feel part of that and understand it in a way that you couldn't without that performance. Secondary performance for you? I've got Lupita Nyong'o as Patsy. Just watching her performance as she went through the brutality against her and her the moment she sits down and begs Solomon to kill her and performance with the whole soap and all those little moments they just they really draw you in and make you understand a different aspect of all of this as she's struggling with those feelings and everything that's happening to her i also had her as my best secondary not just because of the oscar win which i think was deserved that year and i thought so in the moment but there were two things that really stuck out to me you mentioned the begging scene where she's asking him to end her life and her suffering. I thought that really stuck out to me as all of the vast array of emotions finally come out from her. She seems to be a very quiet, very stoic person, but this is the one scene that she gets to really let loose all of the trauma and carnage that she's been a part of. And I thought that was very affecting. The other one was part of my research, and it wasn't something I ended up including in the Did You Know section, but the physical acting required from the whipping scene, which I'm sure is going to come up here in a little bit, where all she was able to feel was kind of the wind of the, the whip itself, and then hear the crack of it, but she has to react in real time as the prosthetic is obviously taking the brunt of all of that as it's going on. So I'm not really sure how they did a practical effect on all of that and how it came to be, but to be able to physically act in a way that was believable, I think was actually extraordinary. Dad, who did you have? I'll agree with you for the same reason you both provided. There was a lot of subtle emotions. I mean, the scene where Mrs. Epps scratches her face when they're doing the uh, dance. She had to uh, look both hurt and shocked at the same time. And, you know, some of those scenes seem to require a level of acting that was, I mean, it was not a two-dimensional character, nor was it a two-dimensional acting job. It was multi-layered throughout. And, she did a nice job of nailing so many aspects of the feelings that her character was going through during the or throughout the film. And it's a little bit amazing to me, given that her star has clearly risen in the last few years with the Black Panther movies and doing Us with Jordan Peele, but that this was her theatrical debut. Most charismatic for me, I was very tempted and torn between two people in this category. I went with the latter of the two. And when I said that edgy of four was not going to be on my list, it's because this person edged them out and it's going towards dad's notion of negative charisma as opposed to positive. For me, it's Michael Fassbender. Every time he's on screen, you cannot look away. He is vile, reprehensible and unforgiving in his portrayal but you need somebody that is so ungodly evil for this movie to work. And I think he displays just about everything he can in this movie. In fact, I'm still surprised and I don't remember who won best supporting actor this year, but I thought it was his to lose. And the fact that he didn't win it is still somewhat surprising to me. 
for me, the person that stood out the most was probably not in like a charismatic way, I guess. I don't think of charismatic as, you know, a bad way, but like this movie didn't have anyone who was super bubbly and over the top. So I guess for me, it was probably the Eliza, the person who played Eliza. Every time you saw her, you understood her pain and what she's going through. I mean, it starts with her just being introduced with her children and welcoming them back in and then proceeding to have her children stripped away from her and then the when she finally breaks down at the end and is screaming for Solomon to try and save her um I just think that you can really relate to her in some way like you can just feel her pain I don't know her name the actress I didn't look it up I I don't have it here either I can find it pretty quickly if we need it Eliza was played by Edapero Oduye. There you go. What year was this? 2013. 2013. So it was the 2014 Oscars? Probably. I was just trying to look it up and I wasn't finding it. Yeah, it was the one hosted by Ellen DeGeneres. Oh, Jared Leto. Oh, well, boy. That's a really good year because you had the guy from Captain Phillips that was memeable forever. You had Jonah Hill doing a pretty damn good job in Wolf of Wall Street, a film we're going to get to later this year. Fassbender and Jared Leto for Dallas Buyers Club. Yeah, that's that's a pretty stacked category that year. Yeah. So I also had Fassbender. It's rare that you have an actor who plays such a miserable character that you almost enjoy watching him be so terrible. He became so despicable that you lost really an understanding that it was just an act well i think there's a sense that he loses his humanity with how evil he really is you you lose a sense of him as a person and so i agree with the opinion that to see him suffer potentially or for him to lose anything is i wouldn't say entertaining but enjoyable i i would agree i mean he I want to say almost um, he's so terrible you love him, but it's it's the wrong word, love. You don't empathize with him at all. You love to hate him. Yeah, maybe that's it. The emotion is so raw that you think, yeah, like boy, that was a that I'm I'm correct in that feeling. Let's go to best scene. Here are some of the nominees that I have. Solomon wakes up in jail. So I think that's really the jumping off point for this story. I think the first 10 minutes or so are a little more perfunctory background, but it's really when he wakes up in jail that I think the movie kind of kicks off and it goes through a few flashback sequences of him trying to figure out how he even got there. Engineering for Ford. So you see his brain at work, his education and his experiences start to pay off for him that He's not just your average run-of-the-mill slave. He's actually got some ability. Then Tussle with Tibbeats, which you like when he's able to take the whip away and basically beat up the other guy, even if it ends kind of poorly for him, in that he has to go over to Epps's. Then I had Patsy Asks for Platt's Mercy, which we mentioned before. I have Armsby, which is the scene where he asks the guy to send the letter for him and it obviously doesn't work out well i have the whipping scene i have parker rescue solomon and then the reunion with his family did i miss any you wanted to highlight i had one that was not on your list burying one of their own that scene where oh yeah they were burying the slave who fell over in the fields and you're watching as solomon is battling with his own mind and he's quiet and kind of reserved at first and then eventually he starts joining in with them and their sorrow and the song that they're singing. I thought that was a good one. Best scene to me is uh, Patsy's whipping scene. There's so much emotion on both sides. Um, you can just see the inner turmoil of he having to decide whether he's going to really do this, you know, in, in order to do it. I mean, that's the only way he's going to save himself is to do it and make the whipping actually painful and raw. And 
it just becomes such a a heart ripping, heart tearing scene for everyone involved, except uh, Epps, of course, who you only further vilify and revile. Well, even to the extent that he refuses to do it himself. He has a certain level of cowardice to actually take the action of his own cruelty. Yes. I would agree. I think that's the most affecting scene in the movie. I think it has the most detail, clearly the most level of real-time stunt work being done, but also a degree to the shocking nature of it. There has to be a lot more heavy-level acting than just about any other point in the film. I think it is the point in the film where it really crescendos. Allison, what did you have? My ones were waking up in the cell and something wrong with the instructions, as were mentioned previously, for a best scene. I liked the when he was waking up in the cell and he was discovering and trying to figure out and put a piece it together what had happened. He's when his hands all of a sudden and then he tries to stand up in his feet and just the whole play of emotions and everything going through his head with all of that. Favorite scene for me, I think because of the resolution of it and because it also is the release of the tension that's basically been there for almost the entirety of the movie, it's the reunion scene. It's the heaviest on emotion. It's kind of this movie's version of Oscar Schindler, I could have gotten more out. It has to be that final moment of catharsis to bring you back into somewhat of the light for this movie to not just be about the cruelty. I think you could have made a movie that is simply about the cruelty inflicted on other human beings, but I don't know if anyone would have gotten as much out if you don't have this final moment there to kind of comfort you a little bit and allow you some lightness as you leave the theater. I mean, I agree. And I extended mine a little bit further to include also the rescue part where where they're chasing after him and he's they're threatening to get to take him back and that whole part where he's rescued and then reunited with his family. I think it's just heart wrenching. It makes you feel happy for him. It just it wraps it all up and makes you really feel that sense of resolution and passion and love for everything. I actually have the uh, Solomon hanging scene where he's hung and Ford comes in and cuts him down and then it's up selling him to Epps. And the reason why is, is Ford is by far the most likable white person in the film other than Brad Pitt's character. And he has to still live by the social norms. He can only go so far. He can't go beyond. The circumstances are he can be kind and he can be uh, accommodating. He can be gentle towards his slaves and he can be gentle towards Solomon. But ultimately, he still has to conform. And what I, the reason why I find it my favorite scene is because it conveys that the whole lost cause that we're going to get in later on with uh, our review of Gone with the Wind is a fallacy that even the the best intended person in the involved in slavery was still having to exhibit levels of cruelty and brutality that were not human that you had to compromise so much and i think that scene shows that even the best were still pretty bad well they owned slaves Therefore, they had, I mean, doesn't matter how good a person you are, you owned another human being. So they were stuck in that trap. They were never going to be the hero of the story as much as you want. I think they were the hero of their own story, but the point being that they didn't see them as human. Most indelible for me, I think it's pretty obvious. It's the whipping scene. It was the one thing that I immediately went back to in my mind when we were thinking about watching this movie or putting it on the schedule. It's the one thing I really remembered from the last 10 years about this movie. In fact, I think I was much like you, Dad, when we sat down to watch this over the weekend. I didn't remember a lot of the pieces or beats of this movie, but that was the one thing that I always knew was coming. 
and it's still just as affecting. I actually went differently. Um, I went with the reuniting with his family is the most indelible to me because the, the part that just threw me was is him apologizing for him having been kidnapped and having been gone for 12 years. And the fact that somehow or another, we make people who are subject to racism have to apologize or feel sorry for the fact that they're of a different race. And I see that that apology, I, I, I just, I thought that was just very difficult to accept. I don't know how to put it exactly. I've been wrestling with this all afternoon, trying to think of the right way to put it. The fact that they need to feel apologetic for being put into terrible situations is in and of itself terrible. And that's why it just made a, a mark on me that no human should have to feel sorry or apologize for being put upon or treated poorly. Doesn't make sense, but I know it happens. For me, it was the scene where he's hung by the tree and then the guy comes and saves him from being completely killed but then and scares off the three men, but then he just leaves him there. And everyone is going about their business. Everyone is walking by. Nobody's paying him any attention. They're laughing. They're playing games in the background. Well, he's just hung there by his neck, waiting and praying that somebody comes to him before he gets really hurt and then just waiting to be cut down by Ford. It just, that really sticks. It's like, why would everyone just be sitting around watching this and not trying to help him or any, I mean, nobody white or black helped him. And that just really stuck with me as everyone sees his suffering. That looks like a good place to take our second break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, starting in May, I'm partnering with Adam Hitchcock of the Streaming Circuit Podcast to start a special series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where we will be discussing each film from the original Iron Man up through Avengers Endgame. The first half of each show will be on his feed, and the second half we will apply the Stanley rubric to each film to determine the greatest Marvel film of all time. Don't miss out. Make sure you are subscribed to both feeds to get these episodes. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Murray Melvin, 90, English actor, was in Alfie and Liz Tomania and Barry Lyndon. Garn Stevens, 87, American actress, was in Phyllis, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, and The Sunshine Boys. She also had nominations for Primetime Emmy Awards for Outstanding Writing for a Drama Series, I believe, for Phyllis. And Ahmad Jamal, 92, American Jazz Pianist. And so we recognize these three here for their contributions to the arts with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Let's move to best lines. Solomon Northup, I don't want to survive, I want to live. Clemens, if you want to survive, do and say as little as possible. Tell no one who you really are and tell no one that you can read and write unless you want to be a dead end. Mistress Shaw, in his own time, the good Lord will manage them all. The curse of the pharaohs was a poor example of what awaits for the plantation class. Edwin Epps, I bought him, I paid for him. Bass. Well, of course you did, and the law says you have the right to hold an N. But begging the law's pardon, it lies. Suppose they pass a law taking away your liberty, making you a slave. Suppose. Epps. That ain't a supposable case. Bass. Laws change, Epps. Universal truths are constant. It is a fact, a plain and simple fact, that what is true and right is true and right for all white and black alike. Epps. You compare me to an end, Bass? Bass. I'm only asking, in the eyes of God, what is the difference? Bass. If this conversation concerns what is factual and what is not, then it must be said that there is no justice nor righteousness in their slavery. Solomon. I apologize for my appearance, but I've had a difficult time these past several years. 
Northup. Thou devil, sooner or later, somewhere in the course of eternal justice, thou shalt answer for this sin. Epps. No sin? There is no sin. A man does how he pleases with his property. At the moment, Platt, I am of great pleasure. You be goddamn careful I don't come to wanton to lighten in my mood no further. Bass. Listen, Epps. These ends are human beings. If they are allowed to climb no higher than brute animals, you and men like you will have to answer for it. Solomon. I will not fall into despair. I will keep myself hardy until freedom is opportune. Mistress Ford. Something to eat and some rest. Your children will soon enough be forgotten. Solomon Northup. I did as instructed. If there's something wrong, it's wrong with the instructions. Mistress Epps, you will remove that black <clears throat> from this property. I'll take myself back to Cheneyville. Epps, back to the hog's trough where I found you. Do not set yourself against Patsy, my dear, because I will rid myself of you well before I do away with her. I'm out. I will write your letter, sir, and if it brings you your freedom, it'll be more than a pleasure. It will have been my duty. Bass. I'm done. It's my last one. All right. Let's go to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. Dad, I'll give you the option. I'll take it. This is one where you don't hear a lot about the film, really, anymore. Um, even the, I mean, it's still the performances were great and I think it helped advance the careers of each of the main, well, the main actors and the director, but I have a hard time going further than that because again, this is not held in the high level of, or among the pantheon of films. So for the industry, one of the four and it's less talked about in the public. I mean, a lot of people don't even remember the film or you talk about race or whatever and then ask about films. You'll hear people mention Roots a lot more than you would this film. And it may be a shame, but I I, I just don't think it's something that's been absorbed within the culture as much uh, for a legacy. So I wanted the 3.5 for the public. People who do remember it find it powerful and, and fantastic. So the passion among those who are actively considering the movie gives it a bump up over those who just don't think about it or remember it. So that was a 3.5 for the public, so 7.5 overall. Do you want to go, Allison? Sure. I went with a 3 for industry just because it doesn't seem to have had a lasting impact on the industry. I mean, it did still win Best Picture, but after that, it kind of faded out. And I went with a 3.5 for Society for similar reasons in that it it made a big difference at the time it was made. And for anyone who still remembers it, or sometimes the high school teachers will play it when they're talking about that kind of stuff. So it still does resonate in some ways. But overall, it does not really impact society, or ha most people don't really remember it. So what's your score? I had 3 for industry and 3.5 for society. So 6.5? So I'm going to be the lowest of all of us. As far as the industry, it's helped promote Steve McQueen a little bit, but he hasn't really done a lot of other mainstream projects. I don't see him popping up and doing you know, these, these very straightforward movies right now that you could consider popcorn flicks or anything like that. He didn't use this status. In fact, he probably went the other way and he's done even more auteur driven stuff. I think the last thing I remember him doing was kind of a series of movies that were shot is kind of a mini series on Amazon prime about, I think the black struggle. If I remember right, I, I can't, remember all of it. It was a couple of years ago and I don't remember seeing any of them. So I think he's a little bit more known name in the industry portion of it, but it, it's not like he's used that to direct a Jurassic Park movie or a Marvel film that was like huge, anything like that. Edgeofor, I think the only other major significant role that he got from this which I would have thought that he would have been a much bigger star coming out of this, 
he kind of became the sidekick to Benedict Cumberbatch in a Doctor Strange film. And he's then kind of becomes the villain of sorts. So it's not like his stature was all that raised. Nyong'o is probably the person that's been pushed out front a little bit more than anybody else. But it's not like she's, you know, one of the, the big actresses in Hollywood. I mean, how many f- people of her age group would you have to go before you probably got to her? even among like black actresses and Fassbender, We already talked about this a couple of weeks ago that he's really faded from public view over the last probably six years or so. So as much as I think that some of these stars are a little bit more recognizable due to this movie and the fact that at the time it was a fairly decent commercial success, it's just not one of those films where everybody got a bump up in the way that you thought that they might coming out of it. So from an industry standpoint, I'll give it a three. From an audience perspective, we're the people that probably would know this film and probably should have seen it. And we haven't seen it for 10 years. And I don't know how long it would have been had it not been that we were doing this for the show. Like, I I just don't know how many people are going to sit down on a Friday night and say, let's watch 12 Years a Slave. I know that may contribute towards maybe a rewatchability factor, but I think this was big in the moment. This was probably one of the closest Oscar races we ever had between two movies. It's the only example where we had a tie at the Producers Guild between this movie and Gravity. And I think historically, this was probably the better film to have won. It was the one that I really thought should win over Gravity, even though I liked Gravity, and we will be covering that later this year. You know, it it just kind of fades out. It's one of those movies where it comes and goes and it has an impact in the moment, but it just fades. So I went with a two and I think that may be about right. The further out we get from this, I think it'll fade even more, which is unfortunate. So I had a five overall. You've convinced me to lower my public score by a half. So instead of a 7.5, I'll go to a seven uh, with the public being a three. Okay. I think you're right. And yes, you can mark that down. So that's a 6.67, or excuse me, a 6.17 between the three of us. Impact significance. In the moment, I would say from an industry standpoint, nearly universal critic praise, 10 Oscars for a film that's a historical drama about a very difficult subject, a best picture win, and I would say at least a small boost for all of its major players after it was released, that's got to be a five for me. I I do remember this being somewhat of an outsized movie that everybody kind of knew about in the moment. From an audience perspective, I can't give it like a full five. It's not like everybody was going out to see this thing. But this is a film that I think domestically made like $80 million for a slavery film that's significant in 2013. Like, I wonder really how much if we release this movie now how few a dollars it really would get. But at the time, that's pretty significant. So I went with a four there for a nine overall. I went with industry for three just because, yeah, it won a ton of awards, but the impact was only, you know, looking at this over a longer term period, it really didn't have a huge significance. At the time it did, but it didn't last very long, the significance and the... Impact. This category is only for the initial five years. Yes, but must, I must say, after two years, I'd probably forgotten this movie existed, and I don't think very many people in the industry probably remembered after a couple of years either. So, in society, I also went with a three, just because, again, it was forgotten about pretty quickly. It was one of those, people like to watch that kind of movie, but then they don't want to feel bad or guilty about those type of things, so then they kind of push it to the back of their mind and kind of are like, okay, I don't want to feel guilty, I don't want to feel bad, so I'm going to forget about this movie and move on. And so kind of at at the moment when you watch it, it has an impact, but then it quickly disappears. And so I went with a three for both. Impact and significance um, for the industry, I went with a four. Um, The number of nominations, the fact that it uh, garnered three wins, the fact that... uh, it was kind of considered as a, a, a very accurate portrayal and, and critics seemed to really love 
the performances, the script, the presentation. I went with a four there. Public, I would normally, I was going to say a four. I'm going to say 3.5 now. I think that part of the reason why this did so well at the box office is even though a lot of people didn't talk about it, this would have been within the 150, 150th anniversary period of the Civil War. And so there was some renewed interest by a lot of people in the conflict and what was going on before you know, that conflict. So I think that had a boost for it that I don't think was normal. So I'm going to give it a half point down for that reason. So I'm going to go with a 7.5. And that becomes a 7.5 average between the three of us. Novelty, I'm going to argue for a nine. I think that there have been a lot of slavery portrayals on film, but I don't think they were quite to this level that we've talked about ad nauseum already and had this level of rawness to them. Again, it's the violence, but it's meant to evoke a very visceral reaction. And I don't remember, even in Roots, when Kunta Kinte's foot is cut off, it's never quite shown to the, the true violent extent on film in a way this is. I think there are other films that try to get close to this. Like I remember Amistad from Steven Spielberg in the late 90s did some levels of this. But again, taking it to the whipping scene or the lynching scene or any of the other things that are a little bit visceral about this movie after you see it, how many of those are being portrayed widely and to that extent, that aggressive, almost in-your-face extent throughout the course of this movie. So that's where I'm at. I go with a nine. I went with an eight just because it really did push the boundaries and the I mean, it really went for that historical perspective um, it tried to show things from a different angle than you're comfortable with. So it really wanted to make you feel and think. And I think it did a really good job of that. And so I gave it an eight just because it really does push you. For me, the rawness of it deserves higher marks. But the story itself, I mean, we had, you know, we've talked about Roots I think Roots was a pivotal moment in exploration of the slave era and what took place and what we kind of have tried to whitewash. And I don't use that term without understanding the irony in using it. The problem I have is, is this is not something that's completely unique. It's unique in expressing the brutality and the violence, but Roots, to me, is the most novel. I don't think this deviates other than showing the violence as opposed to the TV version, which had to have a much higher level of censorship uh, implying the violence. So I can't go as high as either of you. I went with a 7.5. I think it does have, because it's in a personal account of slavery, I also give it a little bit higher than what I would normally have done based upon all the considerations I've indicated. So that's an 8.17 average between the three of us. Classicness, Dad, you can start. Considering this is a time period piece, and I think it accurately portrays the attitudes and realities of slave owners and of slaves of the situation, I gave it a 10 for classicness because I couldn't find anything that I really found needed to be deviated. We had strong female characters at times, or at least impactful female characters. And um, I think each each brought their own sense. I mean, it showed the struggle of people coming to terms or trying to justify the peculiar institution as it's referred to in the vernacular of the time. So I, I, I couldn't deviate, so I went with a 10. I would probably go with a 9 because it still resonates. It has aged well. I mean, it's because it is this historical piece, it's not going to age well. It's not going to just fizzle out. 
And they did a really good job of handling uncomfortable situations in a way that made you feel and think without making you feel, too, I don't want to say not uncomfortable, because they made you feel uncomfortable, but in a different way than just feeling like this was wrong, they shouldn't have been showing this. I also liked that, you know, it's still, even 10 years later I'm watching this movie, and it's still making me feel the same things. And so I think a nine... I don't, there were some areas that I think they could have changed a few things just based on some of the reviews I was reading from people of color who watched it and people who studied the area. There were a few little tweaks that could have been made, but I think overall it was very well done. I considered a 10, but I couldn't quite get there. There are two things that necessarily prevent me from going to that point. One is I don't think enough time has passed to truly appreciate the movie in its full totality. But the other part of it that's working a little bit against it in my mind, we usually reward classicness as being ahead of its time or being able to appreciate this in that regard. Because this is so backward looking, I don't know, given the challenges that we're still having with race relations currently and how... The situation has evolved, but not changed all that much. Obviously, we don't have people in forced labor situations, but we still have a lot of the same structural disadvantages. It's hard for me in a nuanced way to say that this backward-looking film, even though it's historical, is going to address a lot of the issues that we're currently going through. And so... Maybe that's an unfair knock against a film that that was never really its intention, but I can't quite get to a 10. I I went with a 9. So that's a 9.33 average between the three of us. So you didn't need help with the math? I already did it. Oh, okay. Rewatchability. This is going to be a very difficult category. I guess I will put myself on the fire first. An important film, but not one that I think people are going to readily rewatch unless somewhat forced to. I'm very wary about putting this too low, but it's also a difficult film to just digest. I'm going to end up at a six, even though in my heart of hearts, I would probably say this should be a five, but it's because of the subject material. I'll try and I guess think well enough of myself to, to think that I'd probably watch this again before another 10 years has passed. I went with a four just because it is very rewatchable in the fact that every time you see it, you're going to get something new out of it. You're going to get a different understanding. You're going to get a perspective, but you're not going to want to watch it again and again. Like it is one that you see every couple of years, every three, four, five years, not one you watch every year. You know, there's certain movies you're like, okay, I have to watch this movie at Christmas or I need to watch this movie once a year. This is not one of those. This is one of those that yes, it, needs to be watched and it should be watched but it's not one you're going to go out and just watch all the time it's not going to happen for me the problem I have in this is that 10 years is about right I you need to almost have forgotten large portions of the film in order to rewatch it and get the impact of the brutality and the callousness exhibited by the uh slave-owning class. This is not a film that you're going to go, oh, I've had a bad day. I'm just going to put on 12 Years a Slave and relax. Is it important and should it be watched? Yes, but by the same token, I'm a historian by nature, and I tend to read a lot of uh, historical or historically-based books. Um, So I'm going to see a lot of this anyway. This is not going to be on my normal, I should watch this on a regular basis. So I'm going to go with four or a 5.5. I assume you're going to need help with math here. Nope. You're not? It's a 5.17 average between the three of us. For audience score, we had a 92% for Google users and a 90% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us a 9.1 score there. So to repeat the categories, we had a 6.17 for Legacy, 7.5 for Impact Significance, an 8.17 for Novelty, 
9.33 for classicness, a 5.17 for rewatchability, and a 9.1 for audience score, giving us a final total of 45.44. And placing it on our list between Spotlight and Monty Python and the Holy Grail. (laughs) You put Monty Python that low? That's how it graded. We didn't place it individually. Well, no, but Dad loves that movie. Well, I also have to grade it in the within the categories associated with the films. I know, he complained about Citizen Kane, and yet I was higher on all of my categories than he was. Yeah, I know. Still one of my favorite films, but um, yeah. Remaining questions. Did Northup not tell anyone he was going with those specific men to Washington, D.C., and no one went to look for him? Well, even if they went to look for him, they changed his name. So he had a completely different name, and nobody knew his real name, so it doesn't matter if they went to look for him. They wouldn't have been able to find him. They changed his name to Platt, and no one would listen to him when he tried to tell him that he had a different name. I don't know why they just didn't Google him. They would have found him. (laughs) It leads to my second question. Why would Northup ever trust strange white people? I don't know, because... I can't believe that it was there wasn't a large level of racism at that time. But having seen now our third teenager shot by somebody mistakenly, I, I can understand how any person of color or of a non-traditional race or orientation would normally be or should be scared of white people. Well, he trusted him because one of his friends said they were okay men, and he referenced him. So I think that he accepted them because somebody gave him a reference to them. Whether that guy actually knew these guys or not, I don't know. Well, it seemed like they were passers-by and that he had just been talking to them. But just because you're friendly as a white guy to other white guys should not be taken lightly. Yeah. Any remaining questions for either of you? Mine was similar along the lines of you. Is how his family? I think his family was trying to find him, but it was like, how were they going about that, and how were they, you know, searching for him in a time where they changed his name and all that? And then, how did they all feel when they finally found him? You I mean you get a little bit of his feeling on this, but you don't really get anything from his family's side. That's the sequel. Yeah. And I guess for me, it's also going to be that PTSD side of it, too, is how is he going to transition home? How is he going to manage this after everything he's seen and been through? How is that going to look? How is that going to be just stepping back into his life? I mean, he missed his children growing up. He missed his daughter getting married. He missed everything and trying to figure out how he's going to resituate himself. And so I, I wonder about that side of things. The only remaining question I had is, is at the end of the movie, they had the credits or the storyboard pieces where it talked about what took place in him trying to discuss, you know, the legal actions he took and the uh, charges he sought and such. I think that almost is, <laughs> that almost would be worth a movie on it, onto itself. I had forgotten until I saw that the fact that most states prohibited black men from testifying against a white person. At least back then it was codified. Now, to some extent, it's nullified by uh, a predominantly white jury. Well, thank you for being on with us, Allison. Yes. Glad I could be here. And you'll be back later on this summer for a different set of movies. One not quite so... um challenging let's say (laughs) i don't remember what else i signed up for but i do remember yeah this one was a little different and uh dad unless you have any just quick remaining thoughts for the week i think that'll do it for us last season of uh the marvelous miss mazel uh or mrs mazel started uh we've watched the first two episodes so far and uh, i'm looking forward to a continuation of that last season it's been a great ride I finished Mandalorian today. Even I have not quite gotten to that. Oh, 
I will not spoil it for you, but it wraps up different than I was predicting. I think than most people were predicting. I've I've seen a lot of backlash so far. It just didn't, it tidied it up too much for me. So that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Now, it isn't that I don't like you, Susan, because after all, in moments of quiet, I'm strangely drawn toward you. But, well, there haven't been any quiet moments. Next week, we are discussing the 1938 screwball romantic comedy, Bringing Up Baby, directed by Howard Hawks, screenplay by Dudley Nichols and Hagar Wilde, starring Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have, so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnyduckinstudios.com, or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.